Okay, well, good morning, everyone. You who have taken your three-day weekend here with us, I'm glad that you could be here. Um, at this time, our kids, ages four to six, are dismissed for Redeemer Kids. Hey, Brett, what are you guys studying today? Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, okay. Well, we always like to pray for our kids here before they go up. So if you would, bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day where we can gather to worship you. Um, Lord, we pray for our kids now, that as they talk about Elijah and these false prophets of Baal, that they would encounter the one true and living God, the God who acts within history, the God who displays his power in amazing ways to prove that he is no false God, he is no idol, he is no thing made with human hands to be worshiped, but he is the God who created, the God who sustains, the God who has delivered, the God who has acted in history to redeem a people from self. Lord, I pray for our kids that even at this young age, they would come face to face with the gospel and that they would love Jesus for it. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are away from us uh, this weekend. Lord, I pray that even uh, the distance may separate us, uh, that that you would still be at work in uniting us together and knitting our hearts together in love through the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would stand in awe of Christ this morning, that we would see the great purposes of the gospel, that we would just stand in amazement and revere the great authority of your name, and that we would treasure Jesus above all else, above any false God, above anything that we would seek to place first ahead of him. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the hope and the riches of your glorious inheritance and the power that is at work towards us who believe this morning. Lord, open our eyes to see and behold the wonder and beauty of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, thanks, guys. Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. If this is your first time with us, you just need to know we love the Bible. We think that the best way of us understanding and seeking to know God and apply the Bible rightly to our lives is to go through Scripture sort of systematically, section by section, book by book. And so we've been in the book of Ephesians now for a while, and, um, and it's been good. It's been glorious. It's been focused on what it means to be united in Christ. What has God done in our lives to reconcile us to him? And what is God doing in our lives to reconcile us to each other, to draw us together? What does that look like for us in everyday life as we go out into this world as those who have been called out and set apart by Christ for Christ? If you don't have a Bible with you, I don't think I mentioned this or not. If I did, I've just just kind of lost it, but it's page 977 in the Bibles there in the chairs. Um, you know, if you study the history of Christianity, and, I, and I'm a buff for the history of Christianity, you, feel, you, you find that there's just story after story after story of all of these amazing men and women, heroes of the faith, people who have sacrificed so much of themselves. They've stepped into the gap. They have heralded the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've been used by God to help right a societal wrong and to speak God's truth to an unbelieving culture and to do so in no ability in and of themselves, but rather to be used by God 
to change the world. The history of Christianity is filled with story after story after story of of these most surprising heroes, these people that God drew out in weakness and used them in powerful ways to change the culture around them. I mean, think about it just for a minute. What compelled the once slave child Patrick to return to Ireland to proclaim the gospel to his captors and to change the very direction of a country? What led Martin Luther, the quiet monk in this little tiny cloister in Erfurt, Germany, to challenge the evils of the papacy at the risk of his own life and spark the Reformation? What propelled the homely politician, William Wilberforce, away from his noble desire to pursue pastoral ministry, to devote himself to God, to wage a 20-plus year grueling battle at risk of his reputation, his popularity, even his own health, to see the abolition of the slave trade throughout the British Empire? What drove guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, away from the quiet and comfortable life of the pastorate and seminary to participate in an assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler. This man sacrificed his ministry, his comfort, his engagement to his fiancée, and even his own life to see the evils of the Third Reich overthrown. Now, that one might be a little surprising to you. He's like, how did Dietrich Bonhoeffer change culture? But man, we're yet to see the influence that Dietrich Bonhoeffer had on the world. I mean, I just, it's amazing the influence that this man has had on Christians like us throughout the world. But, the, but he risked everything. He was executed 23 days before the German surrender after spending two years in Nazi prisons and concentration camps. Some of his best ministry happened from jail. What led the Apostle Paul, man that we're really focusing on today, to face beatings and imprisonment and even the loss of his own life to see the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire, both to Jew and to Gentile? What leads people to do that? There are stories, and and these stories and countless others, in which God used weak and insignificant people to change the world through the gospel. And if you looked hard enough, you know, you could examine the reasons for why each person did what they did, and there are many. It basically boils down to one thing, the gospel. They were compelled by the gospel. They loved the gospel, They were able to see the purposes and implications of the gospel on the world around them. They were able to stand and revere and submit themselves to the authority of the gospel. And when they looked at what Christ had done on their behalf, they cherished that more than anything. They valued the gospel. Well, we're going to see those three things this morning in Ephesians 3. One through six, as we focus on Paul and Paul's ministry. Behind this passage 
is a call. It's a call away from our selfishness, away from our ignorance, away from our apathy and unbelief to see its great purpose, to revere its true authority, and to cherish its great worth. Behind this passage is a call, a call to give up our feeble attempts to build petty little kingdoms for ourselves here on earth because we know that we have already received one in Christ that is far surpassing. And how is that the case? Well, according to Paul, it's a mystery. A mystery that is now revealed by God to change us, to unite us. A mystery that is worth our very lives. And so what I want for us to understand this morning as we look at Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, the central truth, the main tenet of this passage is that God has now revealed the unifying purpose of his precious gospel. I'll say that again. God has now revealed the unifying purpose of his precious gospel. So let's see that in the text as we read Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, page 977, and the Bible's in the chairs. It says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, How this mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the knowledge, uh, into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, And partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The goal of this passage and the goal of my sermon is for us to understand and esteem three words from this text. Mystery, revelation, and stewardship. More specifically, the goal is for us to grasp the purpose and the implications of this mystery that Paul speaks of, the authority that is behind this mystery that Paul speaks of, and to bask and revere the value of this mystery that Paul speaks of. And so to do this, we're actually going to look at this text from end to beginning. We're going to start in verse 6, 3 through 5, 1 and 2. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I want us to start where, from where we've come from. Where chapter 2 has led us to, pick up where we've left off, and then work towards the implications that that ought to have on our hearts and minds. Okay? So first, let's examine the purpose of the mystery. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, is basically a departure from Paul's argument. All right? He's, He's kind of going down this train of thought, and he makes a break because he wants to make something abundantly clear. In chapter 2, Paul has explained to us the dynamic relational change that takes place in the gospel. This huge, dramatic change. It's not just vertical, but horizontal. Not only has God saved us by his grace and reconciled us through this vertical relationship between him and us, but the gospel also has this profound, dynamic, horizontal change as well. It changes the way that we relate to each other. Because God has taken us, those who were 
all dead in our sin, enslaved by the world, the devil, and our own sinful flesh. All of us who were justly and rightly condemned under God's wrath, he took us and brought us to himself by his grace. God has done what we could never do for ourselves. Not even in our best intentions, and not even in our most desperate efforts. God has done what we cannot. He has brought us near. In love, he has drawn us to himself. But this peace and reconciliation is not just vertical, it's horizontal as well. And we saw that in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, where we read that Christ has taken those who were formerly separated, formerly alienated, formerly hostile towards one another, because that's what sin does. It separates us from everyone else. And he has brought us together. He has made us one. He has created in himself one new man, the church, in place of the two. He has broken down the dividing walls of hostility that we would erect in our sin to separate us, to keep us independent from one another. And in his place is put Christ. That hostility that we would hold against one another because I I don't like you. You're different than I am. I don't feel comfortable around you. You're different than I am. He destroys, he kills it on the cross. And so Paul overwhelmed by this mystery of the gospel, is about to pray to God. Or if you look there in verse 14, you see the same language. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, and he's about to say, bow my knees before the Father. But he felt a sudden impulse to clarify the significance of the mystery of Christ, what it has meant for them, his readers, and for us, and what it has meant for him. So what is this mystery? Well, our our modern entertainments have ruined the idea of mystery for us, right? When we think about mysteries, we think of unsolved cases that require brilliant deductions of a particularly witty and eccentric sleuth in a deerstalker cap with a magnifying glass. Or we think of a girl named Nancy, right? Or we think of Colonel Mustard in the library with a candlestick. Or if you really were into cartoons, you think of like a bunch of misfits riding around in this van from the 70s with a dog named Scooby. That's what we think about when we think of mystery. About this particularly puzzling case that is solved by careful human or canine deduction. But that's clearly not what Paul means. Nor does Paul suggesting that Christianity is sort of like an ancient Greco-Roman mystery religion. In a mystery religion, you came to a greater understanding through one of two things, right? Either some mystical spiritual experiences or you had to climb up the ladder to get into the inner circle to really understand what the true doctrine of that group was. We have mystery religions today in Mormonism and the Masonic order. Right, So in that, everything, like the, the, the real true core of what it means to be in a mystery religion is, is for you to kind of figure out as you go along, but you have to be really, really committed to it. You have to prove your worth before you can really be led in to know what it's all about, either through, again, spiritual experiences or through your own ingenuity and effort. But that's not what the Bible means either when it says mystery. Now, when Scripture talks about the mystery of the gospel, 
It's referring to that which was formerly hidden, but now has been revealed. It was formerly hidden so that no amount of human effort or deduction could have ever discovered the, min- the mystery. We would have never, ever figured it out. It was unattainable to us. But that mystery has now been revealed by God. He has made it known. That once hidden mystery is now an open secret. It's clear. It's revealed. It's been fully disclosed. You don't have to work up the ladder to try to get into that inner circle to prove yourself worthy, to know the truth. It's not about your own effort. It's not about your own mystical, spiritual experiences because God has now made it explicit for any and everyone to see. That's what the Bible means when it says mystery, that things formerly hidden but have now been openly revealed. But what exactly is this mystery that that Paul is speaking of? Well, most simply, if we could get the most broad definition, let's start with breadth and then let's work to specifics, okay? The most broad definition is right there in verse 4, the mystery of Christ. Christ is the mystery, okay? Okay? Not just the person of Christ, who he is, fully God and fully man, but the effect that his life, death, and resurrection has, is, and will have on all things. We saw mystery once before, back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And there we saw that God the Father has made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So there in chapter one, what he's talking about in terms of the mystery of Christ is cosmic reconciliation. I mean, you want to think big picture. Let's think about this. Paul is saying, listen, this reconciliation that takes place in Christ is far more than you and Jesus It's everything that ever is and ever will be and ever was and Jesus. That all things, things heavenly, things on earth, all things will be reconciled to him. Not that it means universal salvation there, but what it means is that all things will be reckoned to him. Either for eternal blessings through faithfulness to Christ or eternal separation, alienation, and damnation by rejecting. Every cosmic power, every rule, every authority, everything that ever was will be reconciled to God. That's what he's speaking about in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Everything will be reckoned vertically to God. But here in chapter 3, verse 6, he shifts because he says, listen, that reconciliation, that cosmic reconciliation that's going to happen, that is happening and is going to happen, it has effects on the here and now. Right here and right now. Not just in the abstract, but in your relationships. And so he says right there in chapter 3, verse 6, this has horizontal effects, just as we saw in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Paul explains this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. These people who were once without hope, completely separated from God. Those who were hated by the Jews, who only had the promise of eternal separation from God, are now united with God's people through the gospel. That cosmic reconciliation is now has its effect in that those who were once separated earthly, 
in terms of people groups and preferences, all of that has been dismantled. And now they're fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ. So Paul's reason for pausing from this prayer to take a minute to explain the stewardship of the mystery of Christ is is so that we would understand that unknown to us, it was God's eternal purpose in Christ, not just to reconcile all things to himself, but to unite his people together. People from every color, people from every race, people from every background, any kind of distinction that you could think of, God has brought them together in Christ through the gospel. That's the mystery that has now been revealed. There's no longer any distinction that if you've been united with Christ, you have turned away from your sin and you are trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and the hope of eternal life, you've received the indwelling Holy Spirit as confirmation that you belong to Christ, then Christ is in you and he is the hope of glory. And because that's the case, now regardless of your age, regardless of status, regardless of ethnicity, you are a fellow heir. It means that we together receive and and inherit the same blessings. A fellow heir, you get this, right? You know how inheritances work, right? If someone dies, passes away, and they give, give their inheritance towards their heirs, whoever they are. They're saying you are an heir alongside all those who are God's children, We saw examples of what that means in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that we have have received election, adoption, redemption. God has made known his will to us. We have been recipients of God's lavish grace towards us. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So together we are fellow heirs. So now regardless of strengths, regardless of weaknesses, regardless of abilities, regardless of our IQ, by the mystery of Christ, together we are members of the same body. Christ himself has created one new man, the church, which is his body in place of the two. And we who are in him are individual members of that body. Paul loves this analogy. Right? Just as... Our organs are dependent upon one another to function in our bodies. He says, so are we together. We are meant to function and, and we need one another to be sustained. And he says in chapter one or four, verse 16, that in these individual members of the body, when joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, regardless of race, Regardless of nationality or the number or the severity of your sins, the mystery of Christ tells us that we are now fellow sharers, that we are partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, that these are ours. Once we were apart from Christ, once we were alienated, separated, strangers to the covenants of promise, once we were without hope and without God in the world, that's who we were. None of that was for us. But now in Christ, all of it is ours. Every great and precious promise that is given in Scripture is ours in Christ Jesus. Ours together. And so the purpose of this mystery of Christ is that we are now in every way fully reconciled to God fully adopted into God's family as God's people. Those who were now formally separated are now fully united to each other in Christ. 
Now there is complete union between God's people, comprised of former Jew and Gentile, through their union with Christ. This is the purpose of the mystery of Christ. We are one in him. And so let's not remain ignorant of the reconciling purposes of the gospel. Let's not remain apathetic or indifferent to the implications that the gospel has on our relationships. Your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ, of your family, your your sons and daughters, your spouses. If Christ has made peace, then we are called to make peace. Let's no longer remain hidden and separate and independent from one another. That's sin leads us towards that. But in Christ, all of those things have been set aside. Let's lay aside then our prejudices, our comforts, our personal preferences, so that we may make the purpose of this mystery our purpose. This is why Paul is telling us this. So that God's purpose in the mystery of Christ might be our purpose. If we are now fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ, then there's no room for racism. There's no room for bigotry. There's no room for hostility. There's no ground for pride or self-exaltation. There's no excuse for us then to fail to love one another as family or investing in one another as fellow members, fellow citizens of God's kingdom. Friends, look carefully at what it says right there in verse 6. You are fellow heirs. You are members of the same body. You are partakers of the same promise in Christ. That is who you are. Live as if that is so, because it is. God has made known his purposes so that they might become our purposes. And so, in Christ, we have been united, and therefore we lay down our pride, our fear, our personal preferences, and we pursue unity and fellowship with God's people for his glory. Friends, here's the thing. God does not call us for us to continue in the same purpose, in the same manner, in the same agendas that we once had before Christ. So often as Christians, we can kind of think that, okay, I'll pursue my purposes and hopefully God's purposes will align with mine. If that's the case, I hate to break it to you, change will never happen. Change happens when God's purposes become our purposes. But not only are we given the purpose of this mystery, second, Paul reveals the authority of this mystery. Now, we have a real tendency to minimize authority. It comes natural to us. It is innate within our own sin nature. We love to minimize authority. And why? Because we're always striving for independence. I want to be the authority in my life. I want to rule my life. I want to dictate what I do, when I do it, how I do it, where I do it, all of that. And so what we do inadvertently is we try to live our lives without God or just to stuff him to the side or control him, try to control him in any way we see fit. Right? I want to live as if this is my world and I am God. And we can do this through outward obstinate rebellion 
sort of biting our thumb and say, forget you, I hate you, God, I'm gonna rebel against you, but we can also do it in quiet defiance and dismissal of God-ordained authority. Maybe you don't put up a fight. Instead, you just ignore it and do what you wanna do anyway. You know, I see this in both, my, both of these in my kids. At a very, very young age, our kids learn the words, pretty much in this order, dada, mama, no. Right? Dada, mama, no. And the only reason no wasn't the very first word that they learned was because our children wanted to make it explicitly clear that when they were saying no, they were saying no to us. Dada, mama, no. Right? But it's also there when you ask your kids to go and do something and they appear to obey. They go and they seem to do it. And then you go a little while later and you check on them and you find them doing Lord only knows what else. And so you're like, okay, why, why didn't you do what I asked you to do? And they say, I didn't want to. You see, that's also rebellion. That's also seeking to live as if I'm the authority. Sure, it wasn't as obstinate and it wasn't as outward and as forceful, but it was every bit as present. You see that struggle for authority. They may not have rebelled outwardly, but they wanted to be the authority in their lives. Well, the same can be said of us. And even when we come to here on Sunday morning, we come to a text like this, and so often I wonder about this. I I think about you guys a lot. I pray for you guys a lot too. I don't just think about you. I pray for you. But so often I think we can come to a text like this and you can come and you hear a sermon and you're just like, well, that's just Chet's opinion on the text. Or that's just the elder's opinion on the text. Or that's just some group of people that is called Redeemer Church. That's their view on it. But me, I can take it or leave it. Because I'm the authority here. Or maybe you think to yourself, well, that's just Paul's opinion. Or... Well, maybe that was the case in Paul's day, in that day and age. Maybe that's true, but maybe it's not really relevant for us today. And so I'm still, I'm just going to dismiss it. I'll do whatever I want to do. Well, if that is you, if you've ever doubted or questioned anything that we've kind of talked about or anything that's presented in the word, I hate to break it to you, but God has anticipated every one of your doubts. All right? This is no surprise even to Paul who, in, even in his own day, faced those who were questioning, who were doubting, who were scoffing at his message. See, it's inherent within us to question authority. But I want you, this is why it's so, so important for us to hear what Paul says next. After reminding them of his imprisonment and the stewardship of God's grace that he has received, he says there in verses three through five, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What Paul wants you to understand is that this is not his message. This was not his idea. He didn't just come up with this, 
right? It, it didn't come from reasonable arguments or human deductions or just plain good and helpful ideas. He's not calling them to reconciliation to God and to each other because that's what he would really like to see or that's his own subjective opinion on what is right. The mystery of Christ is not some grand myth or human invention. It was made known to him by the revelation of God, the God who created all things, the God who sustains all things, the God who rules all things, the God who owns all things, and the God who is spoken into his creation so that we might know him. If we were to take time to go to Acts chapter 9 or Acts 22 or 26, we could read Paul's testimony of his conversion, how God spoke to him. Paul was not always a Christian. Sometimes if you're around people from different cultures, they'll say, well, you know, that's, that's just a Western thing. You were just kind of born that way almost. You're born a Christian. Well, that's not true. I mean, if you know Paul's story, you know that he was a zealous religious leader. He was a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He started out as a Gentile hater. He started out as a persecutor of Christians. Until God changed his life so that he became an ambassador for Christ to the Gentiles. The resurrected and ascended Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and revealed God's plan of salvation to him, revealed God's purposes for the church to Paul, and then he sent him out to proclaim that message that was made known to him by the revelation of God. He received this from the very mouth of our Lord Jesus. And he goes out with that authority behind it. You see, if this is God's word, then it has God's authority behind it. The God who created all things, right? The God who spoke everything into existence. And so if God says it, then it must be obeyed. It has his authority. This mystery, as he says in verse five, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Though God had continued to reveal himself, his, his nature, his character, his purposes and promises to his people throughout the times of the Old Testament, though he had pointed them towards and prepared them for the coming of the Christ who would deliver God's people, just as we had read back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, the mystery of God's will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, was not given until the revealed word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh. He lived a perfectly obedient life to the law of God. He completely fulfilled God's law. All that is required of man. And Jesus gave up that life by dying on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. His perfect life and his infinite being paid the infinite offense that we would bear against an infinite God. He rose from the grave in order to prove who he was. Because Jesus had told us three times at least that he would die and that he would rise again. And that God has given him the authority to lay his life down and to take it up again. It proved that he was the son of God. It proved that God's wrath against sin had been satisfied. It proved that now there is the hope for us that we can be eternally reconciled to God and to each other through faith in him. So God's, through God's Old Testament revelation, 
He slowly and methodically and purposefully and intentionally pointed forward and foreshadowed the coming of Christ. But after Christ came and was resurrected, he gave that message to particular people, to apostles and prophets, whom he had set apart to deliver this message that he had given to them by the Holy Spirit. You have to understand that these are not cockamamie ideas of a bunch of very confused, hyper-spiritual men. This is the intentional, authoritative, purposeful revelation of God. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, and guys, it's normal to doubt. You might be thinking to yourself that this story of Jesus, this idea of revelation of God, this idea of resurrection, it's crazy. And if this were simply the message of men, they're simply the, the, the opinions of men, then it would be. It would be madness to believe it, unless it's true. But if this is the revelation from the holy creator God, so that his people would know him and love him, because apart from that, we have no way of doing it. And let's keep in mind that Paul was willing to stake his life on it. He died for this message. Then, that message is absolutely true. And if it's absolutely true, it is the governing authority for our lives. Paul is assuring us that this is the revelation of God that has been given to him and to other divinely appointed apostles and prophets by the Spirit. But here's the amazing thing about it. You don't just have to take Paul's word for it. You see, in verse 2, he says... Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He's not doubting that they'd heard the message. He, what he really means here is surely, surely you have heard. Surely you have heard how the mis- this mystery was made known to me by revelation. Surely you have already sensed it in this letter as I have written briefly. Surely you have been able to recognize the God-given revelation and authority of what I've said. There's just been something telling you that this is true. But then he says in verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, why would Paul say that? I mean, was Paul just so full of himself that he couldn't imagine that anyone would dare question his wisdom and intellect? No, not at all. Paul's not being proud here, but he is being confident. Not in, his, not in himself, not in his own ability, but in the Holy Spirit. He's confident that when they read or when they listen to his divinely revealed message, the same Holy Spirit who gave him that message would open the eyes of their hearts to the truth and wisdom of what he has said. He's confident that the Holy Spirit works through the revelation of God, just as he prayed back in chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they might know what the hope to which he has called them, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power at work towards us who believe. And so Paul is confident in the power and revelation of the message that he has received from God, that the Holy Spirit would reveal it to them and to us that this message is true. You see, God not only revealed himself to the original writers 
of his word, he reveals himself to his true people when they read it. How do we know that this message is true? Well, God revealed it to be true, and God revealed it in our hearts to be true. Let that be just an overwhelming encouragement to you. God didn't have to do that. His word would have been true had he just revealed it at one point in time and left it alone. But he reveals it in each and every heart of those whom he has called to himself. That we might see and we might believe and we might know that this is his message. Friends, I hope that you can have heard and perceived that this is the revealed word of God. That this is not some made up story by a neurotic man seeking power and control. The God who made the heavens and the earth, he's spoken in various times and in many different ways through the prophets, but now he has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And he speaks through his revealed and authoritative word as we read it so that we might know that these are the true words of God. This is God's revelation of himself to us. And I pray that each of our hearts would be given a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might know him and love him and obey him. And if this is God's revelation of himself to us, then this message is authoritative. And that means that it's not optional, that you don't get to pick and choose what you're willing to believe, what you're willing to do, and what you're not. If this was simply my opinion of an uninspired ancient text, then you could choose to take it or leave it. But this is the authoritative word of God. And so it's not optional. And so if God tells you, be reconciled to your brother, failure to do so is sin. If God tells you to welcome all of those who are his into the household of God, brothers and sisters from every race, from every background, from every status, and you refuse, then it is rebellion against God. If God tells you that you were meant to be a part of a local church, just like we saw last week, and you are unwilling, you're not just rejecting Christ's body, you're rejecting Christ himself. God has revealed to us the mystery of Christ. And because it has been revealed, it is authoritative. This is a call for God's people to respond and to be changed. Before we move on, I just want to kind of just argue from the flip side. If we do not have the revealed word of God, where are we? If God has not revealed himself authoritative to us, then we are in big trouble. How do we know God? How do we worship him rightly? How do we know that at the end of the day, we will be right with God if God has not told us what is necessary? If God's word is not an authority, then you will wander through life helpless as strangers and aliens, hopeless in the dark and without God in the world. You will be tossed around by every wind of doctrine that the world throws out to you only to be led further and further and further and further away from God and his people. That's the alternative if this is not the revealed word of God. God did not reveal his authoritative word to ruin your life. A lot of people look at it that way. God's just like a ho-hum, fuddy-dud, doesn't like me, wants to ruin my life. 
But what we don't realize is that God has revealed his authoritative word to give you life and to change your life. And just as change happens when God's purposes become our purposes, change happens when we fully submit ourselves to the authoritative word of God. And so we've seen the purpose and the authority of the mystery. Now let's look at the third aspect, the value of the mystery. If we're going to see the change and transformation that we really hope for in our lives, then the value of the mystery is actually the most important aspect for us to grasp. Because if we don't value this message, we're not going to submit ourselves to its purposes. If we don't love this message and cherish this message, then it doesn't matter how authoritative it is, we're not going to want it for ourselves. It's only when we cherish the immeasurable value of Christ that we are willing to give ourselves fully to its purposes and submit ourselves to its authority. And so in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Here he calls himself a steward. This is a big word. Right? A steward is a manager. It's an administrator. It's someone who is given responsibility for something of great value that does not belong to them. You see, to be a steward means that you've been entrusted to care for something that belongs to someone else and to sacrifice yourself for it because you know just how valuable it is. A good steward is willing to give up his life for the good of that which he's cared for. Now, if I were to go up to you and I were to hand you a rock and I said, hey, would you look after my rock? You'd look at me like I was crazy, right? And as soon as my back was turned, you'd be kind of tempted to throw it over your back and forget all about it. And if you did hang on to it, let's face it, you would only hang on to it because you, you're being nice to me or you think that I'm a little crazy and you want to help. Now, if I hand you a 10-carat diamond, it's a little different deal, isn't it? It's value attached to it. Or if a dying woman pleaded with her last breath for you to care for her little daughter like Jean Valjean from Les Miserables, we would sacrifice all that we'd worked for because we know just how unworthy we are of this great treasure that we have been entrusted with. Paul was a steward of the priceless and undeserved grace that God had given him. And though he was woefully unworthy, a former persecutor of Christians, Paul had been entrusted with the precious gospel of Christ. And as a steward, he knew that it didn't belong to him, that he must be found faithful. And Paul considered the mystery of Christ to be worth more than anything else, worth more than his reputation, worth more than his safety, worth more than his comfort, worth more than his very life. As he said in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What compels a man to say that? Value. He knows what something's worth. 
Paul had been called by God to a special responsibility to make the mystery of Christ known. Paul, this former hater of the Gentiles and persecutor of the church, who by his own mission, admission had thrown many Christians in prison. He had beaten them in the synagogues. He had cast his vote against them to execute them. And in raging fury, he had persecuted them even to foreign cities. This Paul, who had done so many things in opposing the name of Jesus, was saved by the very one who sought to destroy him. He sought to destroy. And by his grace, God redeemed him. He performed a miracle in his heart, and God called and entrusted him to carry this precious, life-changing gospel to the Gentiles, those that he formerly hated. God had opened his eyes to see the surpassing worth of Christ. And he cherished him above all else so that he was willing to give up everything, everything that he had lived for, all that he had labored to achieve, the name that he had spent his entire life trying to build for himself, he counts as rubbish, as refuse, as waste, as nothing. It was rubbish in light of Christ. Paul was changed because he saw the value of the mystery. And Paul was given a privileged position. He was given the grace of God to be an apostle, to be a steward of this mystery of Christ, as he took the revelation that he'd received from God and took it to the nations. The blessings of God's grace was evident in his life. He was a steward of the grace that was given to him. But this stewardship was not simply that he'd been entrusted with the revelation of God. The stewardship was also revealed in that he might suffer as a prisoner for Christ. You know, often we fly right by words like that. Paul actually calls himself the prisoner, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's the literal translation there. A prisoner for is a good one. Um, But in God's grace, Paul found himself a prisoner for Christ. Now we often, when we think about grace, we want to think about grace and define grace by good stuff. Stuff that we want. Stuff that I like. Stuff that benefits me, that makes my life better. Makes my life more comfortable, more easy. That's God's grace to me. But hardships, difficulties, sufferings, that can't be God's grace. And when we look at that, we can often say to ourselves, man, Paul was left alone in prison. He had nothing. He was abandoned by God. So why does he call himself a prisoner for Christ? Well, Paul's saying here, no. God's grace is shown in that I am a prisoner for Christ. Not that God's grace was removed and I'm alone here in prison. Not that that I'm here in prison in some sadistic attempt to try to earn God's grace for my life. No, it's, he's saying that God's grace, it is God's grace that he is in prison for Christ. He trusts completely in God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, in God's goodness. He knows that he's there for a purpose, that if something is going on that's bigger than him, and that God is with him in that, That God has put him there. He's a prisoner for Christ. He's not a prisoner because the Romans arrested him. He's not a prisoner there because the Jews got him in trouble. 
He's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. God in his grace had a great and glorious purpose behind his imprisonment so that he was willing to suffer for Christ. And I want you to think about this in terms of your life for a minute. I mean, so often we grumble, right? I mean, we just grumble, we complain, we lament about our current trials and circumstances. We view them as, as God's punishment rather than his grace. We fail to see how God is graciously at work through every seemingly mundane, unimportant, or uncomfortable moment for his glory and for our good. And so what we do is we fight and we hide and we avoid and we get angry or bitter or anxious or depressed because we don't see Christ in it. But Paul says, no, no. You want to know this revelation of God is for real? Look at me. Look at me. I'm a prisoner of Christ. The gospel has the power to change. Look at me. A former hater, a former persecutor, a terrorist now in prison for the sake of Christ, the name that I tried to spurn and hate. Look at me. If ever you doubt that God has purpose in all of your life, that God is working to transform through every insignificant or hard or difficult circumstance in your life, look at me. I am proof that the gospel can transform lives, that there is infinite value in Christ, that he is worth it all. So stop lamenting of your circumstances and look, Christ has changed me. Don't lament at your present circumstances then. They are a gift of God's grace to you that you might know Christ and be changed to be more like him. But not only is Paul a prisoner for Christ, if you look at verse one, he is suffering in chains on behalf of you Gentiles as well. In verse two, Paul knew that the stewardship of God's grace was given to him for you. Paul wasn't the recipient of God's grace merely for himself. It didn't stop with Paul. He wasn't exalting himself. He saw its great worth and all that he received in Christ, and it compelled him then to go and share it with others, even at the cost of his own life. And at the end of this section, in chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says, listen, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. He said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I am willing to spend and be spent for your souls. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ because that's far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. Paul was so overwhelmed with the value of the mystery of Christ that he had received. Not only was he willing to give up all that he had, but to spend himself so that others might cherish Christ's great worth as well. He was so changed by the gospel that this former 
Gentile hater and persecutor of the church was now the chosen ambassador for Christ to the Gentiles. I mean, think about how radical this transformation is. Think of the value that's associated with going from a life of hating to a life of loving, from hunting down to serving, from beating to blessing, from, being, from imprisoning to being imprisoned for, from taking to giving, from killing to sacrificing for, from seeking to destroy, from spending his life to build up. all because of the immeasurable value of Christ Jesus in the gospel. He is calling us to look at him and to see the priceless treasure of the gospel, to see its great worth, that it has the power to do what God has called us to do. Friends, I hope you see that it is worth it. Paul is not the only steward of the grace of God given. If, you, if we took time to look at 1 Timothy 4, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1.4, or Titus 1.7, or 1 Peter 4.10, we could see that God has called us to be stewards of his grace as well. Maybe our lives look different than Paul's. Maybe we're not called to the same things that Paul is called to. Nevertheless, we are called clearly to live our lives for Christ, to be a visible demonstration of the gospel to other people that the gospel has the power to transform lives. We all have a stewardship of God's grace that is given for us that we are meant to spend on others. But if you fail to see the value of Christ, that will never be the case. If you love other things more or put other things first in your life, the action and, and your, <clears throat> I'm sorry. If you put other things first, if you love things more than Christ, you show that he's of little value. You show that it's of little worth. Your actions are telling the world that Christ is insignificant. That the cross is a meaningless thing. That Christianity is just another man-made religion where we seek to barter with a God who isn't there. Friends, we are called to steward the grace of God that has been given to us, that has been entrusted to us. Contemplate the immeasurable worth of Christ. Let the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ and the precious gift of redemption change you. Friends, see the truth and the beauty of Christ and let that compel you to be a faithful steward of God's grace that is given you in every single moment, every trial, every mundane circumstance for his glory and the good of others. Because if you do, it'll change you. And not just yourself, but those who see and who hear you. The value of Christ compels us outward, compels us to take the gospel out, out of the overflow of God's abundant grace in our lives, of recognizing the truth and the beauty and the value of Christ. It calls us out to let that be known. We can't help it because we love him more than anything. Friends, what do you love? What do you cherish? 
If someone from the outside looks at your life, are they going to see the value of Christ? And if not, what's getting in the way? Friends, he is worth it. God has now revealed the unifying purpose of his precious gospel. This gospel has the power to change us. It changed Paul. And it happens as we give our, up our self-focused purposes for the purpose of the gospel. As we submit ourselves to the authority we see in the mystery of the gospel. And as we cherish the riches of the mystery of Christ more than anything else. You know, I began this sermon by mentioning Dietrich Bonhoeffer because he was a man who got this. He was a man who understood and esteemed the purpose, the authority, and the value of the gospel. And he was willing to lay his life down because he believed it. And so I want to end with a quote from a letter that he wrote from a Nazi prison. He says, who stands fast? Only the man whose final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom, or his virtue, but who is ready to sacrifice all when he is called to obedient and responsible action in faith and in exclusive allegiance to God. The responsible man who tries to make his whole life an answer to the question and the call of God. Where are these responsible people? Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that if one thing could be taken away from today, it would be that Jesus is precious. Father, I pray that we would not minimize, push aside to to let our lives display Christ as being insufficient, Christ just being an add-on, an addition to our lives, of Christ being supplemental rather than all. Lord, I pray that that we would see the glory in it, the wisdom in it, that your authority behind it, the great worth of knowing Christ above all. I pray that we would see the gravity of our sin and the hope that comes in reconciliation to you and one another and that our lives would be changed, that our purposes would be yours, that we would submit ourselves fully to your authority because we cherish Jesus above everything else. And so, Lord, I pray that Jesus would be sweet to us this morning, that we would taste and see that he is good. It's in his name we pray. Amen.